Fast Money starts right now. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, Bitcoin Week rolls on. Friend of Fast Money and the crypto trader himself, Ron Neuner, who made a correct and bullish call on Bitcoin on this show six weeks ago, is back. He's got a crazy call that will shock the crypto universe. Plus, the CBS Civil War rages on. The board meeting happening right now, just up the street here in New York City. You are looking at a live shot of it. We will get to the ground to get the latest. But first, we start off with, wait, what's that? It's a bird. It's a plane. Nope. It's $80 oil and oh an interpretation God. of Superman. Loose interpretation. That's right. Faster than a speeding bullet. Brent crude rallying to that key $80 level. Now up more than 18% this year, taking energy stocks along for the ride. But as oil prices climb, allegedly signaling a broader, stronger economy, will we start to see a fallout in the market? In other words, is $80 oil a friend or a foe to this rally? And, Guy, where did you get that Halloween costume? That's uh, what I want to know. First, I mean, I know you're making fun of that. We'll address the friend or foe. Oh, I thought he meant your shirt tie. No, he meant that. <laughs> oh, who in Banglewood Cliffs? I mean, did somebody That's draw that? Are we on like well, some we budget? we can't use Superman because it would be trademark infringement. We created so we our own superhero. Uh, you know We've got our own Bitcoin ticker. We, our we do whatever we want to do. It's troubling. The blonde hair is disturbing. Moving on I don't to picture the blondes as superheroes. Moving on to Personally, the question. Personally, that's just me. I think it's a friend, to answer your a question. I have, well, I mean, if it was a foe, I would think these retailers that have been trading really well would be trading really poorly. The airlines haven't gotten smacked. And at a certain point, I think it becomes a detriment. But at the current levels we find ourselves at, no, energy stocks obviously been doing well. Tim's been talking about it for the better part of 15 months. And I think in the aggregate, higher oil means economies are doing better, which theoretically should be good for earnings and the markets. Well, let, let's stop and think about, you know, why oil is at $80, but also talk about the two sides of that superhero. Um, the, the evil oil guy um, hates too much supply, right? Um, the nice oil guy likes demand. So, so first of all, that's for the price of oil, what dictates the price of oil. And we had evil oil guy, uh, which is not guy, but an evil oil <laughs> person, person, person um, for, for the better part of, of two years. In fact, what's interesting is U.S. exports hit record highs um, over the last couple of days if you look at where we are. So uh, our shale and our oil and gas industries are booming again, uh, and yet the difference is that oil companies are running themselves better, and those shares that are outperforming are the ones that are giving capital back and not pursuing growth at all costs. I mean, it's a tax on the consumer, only if the consumer really feels it. But if the consumer is in a good spot, the consumer is employed, right. the consumer is, consumer is seeing some uh, wage increases, then maybe it's not right. so bad. Maybe it's not so bad. I mean, I always think that a spike in anything, whether it's rates or oil or whatever it is, that's really bad. This hasn't been, it's been a quick move, but not a huge spike. One thing, though, worth noting is Brent is far below, and the spread between Brent and WTI has gotten bigger as we've had this glut of, of Brent. So uh, maybe that's a little bit of a dampening effect. But, but to Guy's point, I think if the economy is moving along nicely, it's not surprising you would have demand for oil and that oil prices would go up. And we have a little bit of unrest in the Middle East, so that always puts a little bit of a floor on prices. But I, I feel like the economy is humming along. I would hate to see a big spike in oil. That would be problematic. Of all the things that I own, I'm most worried about the airlines. They, it's a really big, important cost to them. I'd hate to see it get out of control. So are we not worried about the impact in corporate profits? I mean, in earnings season, we've, we've slowly been hearing companies talk about rising costs, particularly when it comes to transportation costs. Right, right. Trucking shortages are impacting them. Energy prices are impacting them. I mean, at what point do we say, you know what? We, we just booked, what, 26, 24 percent 
profit growth year on year in the S&P 500 so far throughout earnings season. Right. We're setting up for very difficult comparisons next year. And here we are in an environment where energy prices and a lot of other things are going higher. Right. So, so I think Guy t started off the show accurately when he said it, it, as long as it doesn't stay here for that long. So I think the, along with the Fed, when the Fed looks at oil prices and says it could be transitory or not, I think if we stay at 80, 85 and go much higher from there, it becomes a headwind. Right now, it's not. I think it helps on productivity. I think it helps on GDP. I think it helps on jobs. I think now, when we're actually exporting more energy, I think it really helps that we are energy independent mm -hmm. at this point. Shale, Timmy touched on it. I don't know if you could buy the Exxon Mobiles. You buy, as, as we just talked about on the desk, the EMP companies, the refiners, because the refined product is going up just as much as the input. Also, quickly, I mean, $70 crude oil is not the same today as it was 10 years ago. Companies are far more efficient. Cars run more Cars efficiently. More efficient. Airplanes run more efficiently. Companies run their businesses better. So although it seems like a tremendous headwind, I don't think it necessarily is. Now, we'll get into the ramifications of the Fed and all that stuff, which is very interesting. But on the just on the margins, I don't think this is going to derail this rally. Here are the numbers that are important to me. Um, in, oil's up 11% since the dollar went from its lows to being up 5% since that time. That usually would have been, a, a if not a death knell, at least a major, major headwind for oil. So I think the oil sector is re-rating. When I look at the oil or the energy sector, which we've said many times in the show, you don't need to own it. And during those bad days, you didn't have to own it. Even for fear of a spike, you weren't missing much, but on a price-to-book basis, on a relative basis to the S&P, to where it historically trades, it's massively cheap. So we're at about a minus 1.2 times relative to its median to the S&P. What does all that mean? It means that the sector is still very, very cheap, okay? And, and if you've got analysts that are coming on board and are able with stable oil prices, Guy, Guy brings up the OVX. I mean, think about how stable volatility has been in the oil sector relative to overall market. So when you say so cheap, though, the, the price of oil and the dollar moving in the same direction, do you get nervous at a certain point with the price of oil per barrel, because that's the headline number that everyone looks at, when people go to the refined product at the pump, at what point do you get nervous price barrel oil? Uh, again, you know, I don't think that the consumer was getting a major tailwind. We weren't talking about this windfall for consumers at $30 oil. Why are we worried about it now? We're not at 140. I don't think there is a line in the sand. I don't think economists are saying $85 oil is a breaking point. If anything, look at commodities. We're at 18 months high on the CRB. Um, the reflation trade is alive and well. And that's, that's metals. That's ag. Um, ag is lagging. I would stay in that trade. I mean, this is a trade that's working across the whole complex. So if we seem to be saying that this is a sign of a stronger economy, economic growth can handle the rise in crude oil prices and some other costs in the economy, does that make you bullish of the stock market? Stock market held a couple weeks ago. We talked about it on the Thursday before the jobs report. The day the S&P traded down, I think, 2580 or stuff, reverse close higher. We said it's taken a shot three times at the level. The C flag hasn't been able to get through it. The market should rally. And here we are a week and a half later, and we're above 2700. So I do think the stock market defended those lows well. Now we probably test a retest of 2800. I don't think we can handle high, uh, higher dollar, higher oil, higher interest rates, and a higher market. I don't think all of those things can play nicely in the sandbox so for much, much longer. I would think that the dollar has to give. I, th I think that the dollar and actually crude gives as well. I think that crude is a set-up trade here where I think crude does go lower. Look, I, I think if you listen to, to fund managers and if you read, you know, a lot of people do great work on it. The guy who's about to talk, his firm does great work on it. Merrill Lynch does great work. But if you look at what the breaking point is for equity investors on the 10-year, where they're actually more apt to, to switch over into fixed income, those guys are... 
it's probably three and a half. Uh, I don't think $85 oil is a big deal. And I go back to this, the dollar, the Dixie at 94 is where it was in December. Were we talking about a strong dollar in December with the DXY at 94? No, well, that's we why the so, IWMs uh, you know. are outperforming, though. And for this market to continue to move forward, you need large cap tech, you need the large cap industries, you need uh, uh, corporations to move the S&P higher. You can't do it with the IWMs. That's it. All right. For more on rising oil and what it means for inflation, let's bring in Chris Harvey, Wells Fargo Securities, head of equity strategy. Chris, great to have you back. The guy that, you know. The aforementioned expert <laughs> in the space. Um, what, do you, what do you make of this? I mean, is, does something have to give, as Grasso had said? I don't know if something has to give. I, I agree with the thought process. If you look at oil, oil is usually a proxy of global growth. Years ago, we used to talk about it being the canary in the coal mine. We've kind of forgotten about that. But if you go back to 03, 04, 05, 06, pretty good times for the stock market. You go back to late 14, 15, 16, when oil was trading off, not so great. So I think that works. With regard to interest rates and the curve, what we tell people is, one, don't be afraid of the curve, and two, there's a difference between a flattening yield curve and an inverted curve. In addition to that, 3% on the 10-year, I used to give that my checking account. So we're cognizant of it, but we're not fearful of it. At what point do bonds become an alternative to stocks? So at what percent? To, so the way I think about it, the way I think investors should think about it, it kind of puts a top on things. It's not so much it is going to draw some market share, but it's not a death knell. It's not a, a it's not going to kill off the stock market. It's just going to keep the levels somewhat muted from here. It's going to keep the levels on the stock market muted. Muted. So don't think about big double digit returns. Think about single digit returns from here. But at what at what percent does that happen in your view? So I. I so the, it's not so much at what percent, it's how you get there. One of the okay. things that I fear, one of the things I worry about, do inflation expectations move first? Or is it, are we moving up because growth is so much better than inflation expectations? As long as growth is starting to fill in, rates, as long as they stay managed, equities can go higher. If you see kind of a, a dislocation or a shock, then I start to worry about the equity market. When does this yield curve worry you, or is, you, is it worrying you now? It's not worrying me now. What, what we look back, we look back at Fed tightening cycles, and typically what you see in a Fed tightening cycle is a flattening yield curve. If the curve goes inverted, then we start to worry, but not until that point in time. But Chris, so, but how about the multiple compression for the S&P? Right. So this is, we hear all the time, oh, well, you know, we're, we traded 21 times last year, earnings right. are better. We don't deserve the same multiple in this environment than we did two years ago. And, and we don't have the same multiple. So we have seen multiple contraction. And that's what's typical. You usually see the curve flatten. You see multiple compression. You see a price adjustment, which is code for a sell-off, all of which we've seen. But ultimately, growth starts to go higher, and so does price. And that's what we're starting to see. Well, on the heels of that, so you're not concerned about the second quarter, third quarter earnings being a disappointment relative to how strong the first quarter earnings were and that putting a, some right. sort of cap on them. So usually in a Fed tightening cycle, you see a peaking of growth, you see a peaking of ISM, and it starts to come down. But it stays pretty healthy. And the Fed's raising rates because things are good, not because things are bad. Later on, if we're right and the equity market does go higher, we want to start to de-risk the portfolio. But right now, we're worried about the upside, not the downside. And I agree with some of the earlier thoughts. You've tested that low several times. Now you're starting to get to a different range. And I think equities can work higher from here. So in this environment, which sectors would you be in? So we're still, we're kind of boring with regard to that. If you like the market, you have to like technology. We like technology. We like banks. And we do like industrials. Uh, one of the things that, that we've been looking at, we haven't been able to get our hands around, is energy. Why? Um, so it has all the hallmarks of Chris Harvey. 
it, it, it was very contrarian. Nice third-person reference, <laughs> yeah. by the way. We love that here, just to be clear. Love that. It was contrarian. It's beat up. The sentiment was terrible. As, as Tim said, the valuation was great, but we just couldn't make the risk-reward work. So we stayed neutral, and we got caught looking. And the way we thought about it is, on the industrial side, we got exposure to energy, and that's the way we wanted to play. In addition to that, our clients were saying, we don't really care. It's 1% of our index. It's 3% of our index. It's 5 It's not a big concern. And so we, we just couldn't make it work at that point. All right. Melissa, thanks, Chris Harvey, for being here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Good to see you. Well Chris done. Harvey, Wells Fargo Securities. Um, would you agree with the market view? Uh, sure, but the, you know, I do. I do. You're being so uh, the, polite, just because he's sitting here still. Yeah, and I don't want to pull him back in. So, <laughs> so you know, I do believe though that something does have to give. I, I don't think this can all be Nirvana at this point, with everything moving in one direction. There has to be some correlations, some inverse correlations that happen again, and we are off on the S and P. This hasn't happened in a vacuum. The dollar is up. And if you believe in technology, you have to believe that maybe that dollar strength is probably going to weaken just a bit more to get the IWMs, their outperformance, crimp just a little bit. I think Steve pointed out we, we are off on the S&P, so yeah. something has given sure. already. But for me, my portfolio is very interest rate sensitive to the upside, so heavy in banks as the leaving guest suggested, and <laughs> heavy in technology, which has great balance sheets, so no, no debt. No, and those are the places I want to be to ride out what I think is going to be an interest rate. You know what I found to be fascinating about this? Mm -hmm. I mean, Chris are brilliant, brilliant. Mm -hmm. It really is. He's more Clark Kent than our dopey, blonde-headed Superman at the top of the show. You see him with the glasses and the dark hair? I don't think Guys, Jack, no, no, it's doping. What I are you chewing? This is a TV show. You're chewing a Tootsie I'm, Roll. That's not what we do <laughs> here. It's a gummy bear. You dropped like 40 that's, on my plate. Let's look at that blonde-haired. What is on his shirt? B.O. or O.A.D.O.? $80 oil. $80 Brent. Get it? I get it. Look, we couldn't use Superman. The crack staff did their best. Blonde this isn't good enough. Hero. I'm just saying, do better. <laughs> Coming up, we've got two big after-hours movers, Nordstrom and Applied Materials, both lower following their earnings reports. We'll bring you all the details from their conference calls next. Plus, you're looking at a live shot of CBS headquarters where a battle of the board is going on inside as we speak. We'll bring you all those details as they happen. And later, the crypto crush continues this week despite all the hype around the big blockchain conference here in Manhattan. So with no rally in sight, we'll play the ultimate game of HODL, or photo. <laughs> We're live from New York City Times Square. Much more fast right after this. More online. Which I don't know if count. that counts. Right. Story. I don't know. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got two big after-hours movers, Nordstrom and Applied Materials, both falling after-hours. So you hear the music. It's time for an earnings whip. We've got full coverage on those two conference calls. Aditi Roy on Nordstrom, Josh Lipton on Applied Materials. Aditi, let's kick it off with you. Hi, Melissa. Shares of Nordstrom are down more than 6.5% after a big miss on comp store sales. The retailer is saying its Q1 comp store sales were point, up 0.6%. That's missing analyst expectations of plus 1.1%. The company's net sales increased 5.8%, which they partly attributed to moving a loyalty rewards event into the first quarter this year. Nordstrom also increased its digitally enabled sales enabled uh, by 18%. The company's CFO, Ann Bramman, talked about the retailer's strategic focus this year. As we shared in last quarter's call, we expect 2018 to be an inflection point for improved profitability based on the following drivers. We've made generational investments in Canada and Manhattan and through our acquisitions of Hotlook and Trunk Club. We anticipate operating improvements as these businesses scale. 
We're also benefiting from productivity gains as a result of foundational investments in our capabilities. Some other notable points. The company just opened a flagship men's store in New York City and introduced its first Nordstrom Rack store in Canada. And as you may remember, back in March, Nordstrom ended talks with its founding family over taking the company private after failing to agree on an acceptable price. Back to you guys. All right. Thank you very much, ADD Roy in San Francisco. Karen, you've been sort of plowing through these results. What did you make of it? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I mean, I guess we, we talked a little bit of other revenues coming in, which made Revenues overall greater, but the same store sales that that is disappointing. I think the stock is also a little bit ahead of itself on the heels of Macy's doing better. It's not crazy expensive here. I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about kind of what happened. I, I, it is a premier name, though, and I think they probably didn't get as much benefit from tourism turning around like a Bloomingdale's would. But they do get that uh, Asian Pacific tourist. They have big presence, obviously on the West Coast. So I don't know. I think it's it's not bad here. I'd like to see it shake out a little bit, though. Yeah, I think expectations can can quickly go from awful to to just OK. And then these numbers were just OK. Um, but there's two words that she used in that interview that I thought were really interesting that normally would be really powerful. Inflection point and generational. I mean, in other words, they've, they've made generational investments in long term digital, uh, I think, at least part of a shifting strategy and then they're getting profitable again uh, you know those are things that people should be pretty excited about for a company that people didn't think was going to make it but just to underscore your point in terms of the concern and that is that the same store sales came up short the revenue line looked okay and so yeah. you wonder where the discrepancy is because it's not right from stores open at least one year i'm not yeah i'm yeah. not clear where that's coming from right exactly all right uh, let's send it now over to josh lifton to give us the latest on chipmaker amd josh uh, so applied materials, Melissa, on this call, executives talking about puts and takes in the quarter. So let's start there. They talked about uh, memory, where they said they saw a disciplined investment by memory customers. They believe this bodes well, they're telling analysts, for healthy market dynamics. NAND bit demand expected to grow about 40% this year. They still see spending, they say, similar to last year's high levels. The outlook for DRAM investment, they say, has actually strengthened customers investing, they say, in capacity and technology to meet growing demand there. On the other hand, display, uh, another important business for this company, the products that are used to manufacture those LCD and OLED screens, they say they remain on track in 2018 to grow by more than 30%, but CEO Gary Dickerson saying their early view of 2019 is that revenue is actually going to be lower than this year. They pin that on smartphone sales, they say, coming in below expectations, especially, say, for those high-end models. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. Um, and I just want to make clear, I, I said mistakenly AMD, AMAT. Can I clarify materials. one thing, too? Yes. Yes, JWN on the new price, which is now down 6%, I think it's sort of interesting. Interesting, yes. okay. Now back to AMAT. Thought the quarter was <laughs> decent. Semi-sales were not great, but their margins were better. It's trades at a ladder 11 and a half times forward earnings, which is relatively inexpensive. I mean, they don't have the EPS growth that other companies do, but I think it holds 50 bucks, and I think you try to buy it again. I mean, it's a fine company, and the fact that margins are improving to me is a good sign. You know, it did run up 20% into the print, so yeah. I think that you have to take that with a bit of a grain of salt. I would wait a couple of days before you rush back into it, but uh, we just had Josh mention DRAM prices. Right. Another company that's relying on DRAM prices in the same direction is Micron. Yeah. Micron has been up and down recently dramatically. I would look for that to sell off because it got a little bit ahead of itself, and I think DRAM is actually rolling off as far as the commodity price itself. But, but what we've heard, and you have to go back to the mothership, which is Taiwan Semi, and, and their most recent data points have actually been 
relatively positive. So um, I think a lot of this is a stock that's been trapped in a range because they haven't been able to tell us uh, that things are getting a lot better on pricing. It went from 20 to 57 over the course of two years uh, before pulling back. That's, right. that's your story. I didn't realize they were the mother. Did you know they were the mothership? The mothership I had no idea. Guy. I didn't know. When he said we have to go to the mothership, I wasn't sure where he was talking. Well, I was going to beam us all there. But you know what, guy? Now we know. Well, we'll yeah, stay right here. Right here. Issue. Right here. here. Coming up, the CEO of one high-flying Canadian pot stock just spoke to Jim Cramer moments ago. We'll hear what he said about coming to America and listing on the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. While traditional media struggles, shares of WWE are slamming the competition. And one of our traders says it's just the start of a bigger run. Plus, the man who called the recent Bitcoin rally is back, and he's got a stunning call that will trigger the crypto world. That call when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Well, we all know the SEC has been urging caution over cryptocurrencies, and it just did something to make sure that message hit home for investors. Bob Bassani is at the NYSE to tell us what it is and what it could mean for regulations on crypto down the line. And, Bob, this is a pretty crazy story, I think. I love the SEC. Yeah. They're, they're getting kind of freaky here. The SEC really, really wants you to be aware about potential fraud around initial coin offerings or ICOs, so much so that they have launched their own mock ICO site to show you what to look for. Now, this fake ICO site is called Howie Coin, and it looks like an actual offering site. You can click on it, and you can get a white paper, which describes the coin and how they, will, they claim they're going to democratize travel and leisure for everyone in the crypto community. But if you click on the Buy Coins button, you get this page. It says, if you responded to an investment offer like this, you could have been scammed. Howie Coins are completely fake. And... What it is, it's the SEC's website for individual investors. That's investors.gov. Now, they point out a number of red flags in the report commonly used by ICO scammers. Howie Coin, for example, makes claims of high guaranteed returns. This one claims over 1% daily returns, which the SEC says don't believe it. It also has a celebrity endorsement page from imaginary famous boxer. And that means nothing, of course, the SEC says. So... Is it possible to get an ICO that is compliant with regulations? And that's the problem. It's not really clear right now. Republicans in Congress are working on a bill that would provide a safe harbor. This is a legal safety zone for at least some ICOs. But it's not clear how far that can advance this year, given the lack of time. And if the Democrats win the House in November, it's likely they'll be even more critical of ICOs than the Republicans have been. So this is a toss-up. Now, there's two points about all this. First, the SEC clearly views almost all ICOs as security and it wants them to register with the SEC. And second, the SEC views ICO fraud as a major threat to investors. Now, another major threat is security. Fed Governor Lael Brainerd got a lot of attention at the crypto conference saying there were too many breaches of exchanges and wallet providers for digital currencies to ever gain broad adoption. That's a real serious swipe at the community to get their act together. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob Pisani, thank you so much. I love the cheekiness of the SEC in launching this uh, fake ICO. I think it's and, it, and they use a couple words, democratize, very, which appeals very, to the millennial anti-establishment yeah. lovers of crypto, right, who want to very democratize, hipster. decentralize, et cetera, and 
democratized travel and leisure, experiential. So really going for Surprised that. Surprised they didn't have a picture of a guy with a big beard and some skinny jeans on and like you know, one of those yeah. tight gingham shirts, it's like the ones Steve or blonde Superman. <laughs> Steve wears in the weekend. Uh, for more on this and, and future regulation, let's bring in Rand Neuner. He is the founder of OnChain Capital, the host of CNBC Africa's Crypto Trader. Rand, great to have you back. Nice to be here. So obviously, this was a major um, topic at Consensus. This is a major topic in the crypto world in general, and that is how does the SEC, how does the CFTC sort of divvy up the world? And, and Ether got all the attention, I think, earlier this week, right, in terms of is Ether a security or is Ether a commodity? Because that's going to make a big difference in terms of how it's traded. Well, I think the initiative by, by the SEC was a great one, but I think the joke is on the SEC now because they need to come out with regulation. If they don't come out with regulation, then they may stifle an entire industry. Now, I know they're balancing investor protection with the need to grow an industry, but if you look to places like Japan and Singapore, they've got thriving ICOs and they've got a thriving new industry. And my fear, having traveled extensively to that region and spoken to all the founders and the legislators there, is that the USA actually may be falling behind and that we may not get a Silicon Valley here in the USA because it may all fall into the legislations that are favorable towards these ICOs and have got some kind of regulation in place. But does the innovation have to come from where the ICOs are, or can there be the innovation without the ICOs? Well, you can get the innovation without the, without the ICOs, and that's what the U.S. people are doing. They're right. establishing companies in places like Malta and Gibraltar and Singapore and places where there's favorable tax uh, incentives and places where the regulation uh, speaks well towards ICOs. But the U.S. may get a brain strain towards those areas. If you go to Singapore and you go to Japan, you're speaking to Americans, and they're there because they want to launch their ICOs. So I think the SEC did adopt a responsible approach by taking their time to see what's happening with the industry. But now we know that crypto is real. We know that this thing, the blockchain and crypto isn't going away anytime soon. And now they've got to come to the party and give us some kind of regulation so we know where we stand. Okay, so we got you here. You've been an investor in crypto for many, many years. So we want to play a game with Rand. What game are we, we like playing? We like to play games with friends. We yeah, well, we're nice going games. To we're going to nice play a game. I'm worried. I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried. Total or photal, <laughs> and we're going to give you a, a few cryptocurrencies, and you're going to tell us if you would hold on to the crypto or if you would fold, sell it, photal. Got it? You better got win, it. too. I got to win the game. All right. The first one here is Bitcoin. Hodl or photal? I like Bitcoin a lot, but I'm going to photal. Really? I'm going to photal. Wow. And I'll tell you why. I'll justify that. I think Bitcoin at 8,200, I think the price is low. I think it's going to continue to go up, and I think it's going to continue to go up slowly and in a stable way. But there are more exciting cryptocurrencies out there. And if you're going to ask me whether I'm going to put my money into Bitcoin or something more exciting, I'm going to go with something more exciting. So is part of that because there are Bitcoin futures now because institutional money that is going into cryptocurrencies is going into Bitcoin and that dampens the volatility? A little bit of that, uh -huh. but a lot of the money is going from Bitcoin and even Ethereum and the more established coins into this ICO frenzy. There's this frenzy happening which is not on the markets, which is happening on the, on the outside of the markets where hundreds of millions of dollars are going into ICOs. Where's that money coming from? It's not coming from fiat. It's people cashing in their Bitcoin right. and their Ethereum. And when they cash in, the market's going to go down. That said, I do think the institutions are going to come in towards the end of this year, and that's going to, they're going to come into Bitcoin and Ethereum first, right. and then the market is going to go up. So I am calling Bitcoin up, and I do love the technology, but there are better coins out there, so I'm okay. fuddling on that one. All right, nice. Bitcoin Cash, hodl or photo? I know I'm going to get murdered on Twitter, mm. but I'm going to hodl. <gasps> I'm hodling. I think there's a lot of potential for Bitcoin Cash. I like the team behind it that are driving it. It's all the old Bitcoin people. 
And so my money, as much as it's going to hurt me on Twitter... Why, why will it hurt you on Twitter? Because there are the trolls and the have Bitcoin maximalists. Have you noticed maximalists. when we have Roger Veer on how I'm much hate tweets? It's just curious to hear that a powerhouse <laughs> I mean, like, like this gentleman is, is actually fearful of the, of the noise. But let me just say that I love both kids equally. I love Bitcoin <laughs> and I love Bitcoin Cash and I love them equally. But if you ask me where I'd put my money right now, Bitcoin Cash has got more potential. Ethereum, HODL or FODL? HODL for sure. For sure? For sure. I'm holding Ethereum. They've got the biggest community in the industry, thousands of people, the smartest people in the room. They've got use cases. They're solving their scaling issues, their scalability issues. So I'm holding Ethereum. And Ripple, HODL or FODL? Ripple, I'm throwing in the garbage. <gasps> in the garbage? Yeah. You can't even say FODL. You're that's saying that's in the garbage. That's we need a new animation. FODL, FODL. Why in the garbage? Because I've been researching the Ripple token, the XRP token, for a yeah, long yeah. time. But let me just make a differentiation. Ripple, the company, one of the best companies I know. XRP, the token, I still can't work out what it's used for. Okay, wait, wait. So, because a lot of people say you can't have the platform without the coin, and the, to and the coin is a, you know, a statement as to how good the technology is, but you're saying that there's actually a difference. So, Ripple, the company, does the banking systems. That it replaces right. SWIFT with bank-to-bank -bank money transfers, primarily international money transfers. You don't need the XRP token to do that. So, as far as I know, I can't find a use case for the token. So, I'm out. So, nobody used it for anything? Right now? Absolutely not. And... It's centralized, and that defeats the whole purpose of blockchain. But is the utility of a token really what you're betting on? Because it seems to me this is just a, a speculative um, frenzy, which, and, and I'm not saying that that's negative. I don't mean to spin it negatively. There are a few categories. There's one which is a store of value, which I look at as Bitcoin. Then you've got cryptocurrencies, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, maybe even Bitcoin. For transactions. For transactions. Uh -huh. Then you've got utility tokens, and then you're right. going to get this new class called securities. Um, Utility tokens, I have to buy them for the future utility, though I must say there's no real clear valuation model that we've seen works, but it is, it is a new asset class, yeah. and we are taking a bet on it. I'm going to give you a flyer question, mm. a freebie here, which is not a HODL or FODL question, um, but when you take a look at the world, there are thousands, right, of coins out there. Which is the one that you are most excited about right now? Wow, it could be can... one that we mentioned. It could be one that's off the board, something that we have not mentioned. So I'm excited for a new generation of protocols like Ethereum. And in that, there's a whole lot of, of protocols. Uh, Oasis, Zilliqa, um, Thunder Token. These are all new blockchains which are coming up. Now, when you think about blockchain, you're thinking about decentralization, you're thinking about security, and you're thinking about scalability. Ethereum has scalability issues. They're doing 15 transactions per second, which means that's not real-world stuff. You can't bring it to the real world because it's 15 transactions right. per second. But some of the other blockchains are resolving this, and they're promising 10,000 transactions per second. EOS, Cardano, um, Oasis, Thunder. These are all tokens. Zilliqa. These are all tokens which are promising scalability, security, and decentralization. Yeah. But they don't have the developer community that Ethereum has got. Okay. And that's why I said I'm going to hodl Ethereum, but I am placing some other bets on these new, these new um, sidechains. Okay. Rand, great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Rand Neuner of CNBC Africa's crypto trader. Mm. So you got to catch that. Still ahead, one of Canada's hottest pot stocks, Canopy Growth, could be on its way to Wall Street. Will a U.S. debut spark a fire under the stock? We'll hear from the CEO later this hour. Plus, the CBS board meeting happening right now in New York City amid all the redstone drama. CNBC's Leslie Picker standing by with the latest. Les. Hey, Melissa, that's right. We're here outside of CBS's headquarters in New York, where the board meeting got underway just 30 minutes ago. We'll have more on the battle between CBS and its controlling shareholder right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of CBS getting shellacked today as a judge denied its request for a temporary restraining order against Sherry Redstone's national amusements as the board battles over its possible deal with Viacom. For more on this developing story, let's get to Leslie Picker, who's live outside the CBS headquarters where the board meeting is taking place in New York. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, that's right. The board meeting is underway behind me right here at this at the CBS headquarters. We saw a slew of directors walk in about 45 minutes ago, including Doug Morris and Joseph Califano, but none of them would talk to us or speak on camera. They were supposed to vote on a special dividend that would dilute Sherry Redstone's voting rights. That was the plan. CBS CEO Les Moonves was pushing to prevent a merger between CBS and Viacom, the two companies that Redstone's National Amusements controlled. But a Delaware judge ruled today that CBS's board couldn't block Redstone from waging her power at today's meeting. Now, the special dividend would dilute her power down from 80% to about 17%. So what's next? Well, there's bound to be plenty of courtroom drama in store. No one really expects things to end right here. And of course, CBS has their shareholder meeting in Midtown Manhattan tomorrow. We'll be there to follow all the details, Melissa. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Well, all this drama has given rise to a new hit show on CBS. Redstone and the Restless. Mm. It is the story of the never-ending power struggle for the Tiffany Network and Viacom. It stars, of course, Sumner Redstone, revered and feared 94-year-old media titan. There's also Sherry Redstone, his once estranged daughter who, after orchestrating the removal of Philippe Domon, the French-sounding former CEO who was actually born in Manhattan, has now set her sights on Leslie Moonves, the suave and wildly successful CEO of CBS. And with today's court ruling, investors have some simple but at the same time very hard questions. Will Moonves survive and what is happening to my money? Joining us now is former TiVo CEO and NBC's uh, first president of cable, Tom Rogers, currently executive chairman at Winview Games. He's also a CNBC contributor. And now Fast Money BFF, because this is his second appearance in one week. I mean, it's amazing. Like Few people can do that, Tom, do by the like way. Um, CBS traded as low as down almost 7% intraday. Right. It finished the day down 4%. What are investors, what is the worst case scenario for CBS? That it is that it loses less Moonves? Uh, yes, but I actually think CBS is a real buy here because I do not think that Redstone can force this merger at this point. She may have won today. It would have been extraordinary for the court to strip a control shareholder of control like this. But you had an independent committee vote already on this, five board members unanimously saying this thing is not in the best interest of the public shareholders of CBS. Against that backdrop, I have a very hard time thinking that her lawyers are going to say, you know what, okay, force this through anyway. Lawsuits would be flying. CBS is already down $5.5 in market cap since this whole Viacom story developed. I think with no analysts out there really saying this is a good thing for CBS, maybe good for Viacom, right. but nobody's saying it's a good thing for CBS, so, I don't think she can force this So through. if there's no merger, does Moonvest, Moonvest will stay? Presumably, and then what happens to CBS? It operates as an independent company, or is it? Well, I, th in play? I think I think there are two scenarios. Okay. I think, uh, well, maybe more. Certainly, uh, if it stay, if it doesn't stay as an independent company, Les wasn't going to stay. But as I said, I think it stays independent. I think Les uh, 
uh, has the practical issue of what is it like going to work every day if you got to deal with that tension and everything, and he doesn't necessarily need that. Uh, but, uh, you know, you have the alternative. If Les leaves, there are an awful lot of people out there who think, unlike Viacom, who may not have any other buyers, which is why they are putting so much focus on trying to drive this merger together uh, on, the, on the national amusement side. CBS probably has a lot of buyers. There'd probably be a lot of bids for CBS. And so shareholders either get less than an independent company and what a number of analysts have it as a $67, $68 stock, mm -hmm. or you have uh, a, a multiple bids for an independent company where M&A in the media area couldn't be hotter. So, so, Tom, when you look at CBS, I happen to agree with you. I do believe that CBS is a, is a buy. If you look at it on any metrics, it looks like a buy. But when the smoke clears, are we just playing this for this smoke too clear? Longer term, when we look at the linear business or we look at streaming, is CBS a survivor in that environment? It's a great question because uh, the traditional so-called linear channels, broadcast and cable channels are in decline. Uh, CBS is in a stronger position than most um, because, get this, it has fewer channels and therefore stronger. The toughest thing going, and this is really hurting Viacom, is when you have multiple channels that are not musts, they aren't making it into these so-called skinny bundles, these narrower groups of channels that are now gaining more and more subscribers. In those narrower bundles, CBS, Showtime, they make it in. And so they, they're not vulnerable. Now, they are declining from a ratings point of view, and uh, as is everybody, but as they get smaller, the rest of the sector is declining even more. Hmm. So they are actually, from a reach point of view, which is what advertisers pay a premium for, they're actually getting bigger in a, in a declining sector. And so they got some juice for a while. And I think the, the longer-term issue in terms of network television is not a good scenario, but if you're going to think of who is going to do the best over the next few years, assuming they're not saddled with Viacom, CBS is a pretty strong story. All right, Tom, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for coming by again. Thanks Tom for having Rogers. me. Stud. Yeah. <laughs> Stud. Uh, I'm with Steve Brasso and Tom. So you like CBS? You go back to look at the quarter they just reported on May 2nd. The quarter was outstanding. I mean, they're actually seeing accelerating growth. And if you just look at the quarter in and of itself, this stock should be higher. It trades at eight and a half times next year's earnings. I'm not saying all this Sherry Redstone stuff is noise. It's obviously important. But on valuation alone, I think CBS is pretty interesting. I think it's interesting, too. I mean, the less Moonvis thing, obviously, would, shareholders would really, really hate that. Yeah. But I wonder if the Redstones would try to get value some other way by selling CBS. Right. I mean, that would obviously be good for CBS shareholders. And, and, it, and there'd be, I think, an enormous value unlock. So this is where Tom was also getting at. You know, the M&A environment in the media sector is such that, think of, you know, think of the gyrations or the permutations that are going on right now, Fox, Disney, um, you know, AT&T, you, know, you name it. I, I think if you could introduce CBS into that feeding frenzy and adding that scale to the guys that want to be able to control over the top, good for them. Just quickly, because we haven't touched on it, what do we do with Viacom? Well, I've been wrong with that one for a long time. But, I mean, if you like CBS on valuations, uh, Viacom's even cheaper. Now, Viacom has its own issues without Which question. Tom had outlined so succinctly. Play the game? Would you rather? Would you rather? Yes. Right. So I, I got myself out of that one. <laughs> the CEO of one of the hottest pot stocks, Canopy Grow, sitting down with Mad Money's Jim Cramer in an exclusive interview moments ago. We'll bring you those comments. Plus, shares of the WWE soaring today and now up nearly 65% this year. We'll tell you what's behind that move. Much more fast right after this. 
Welcome back to Fast Money Pot. Saw canopy growth soaring more than 10% this week after applying to be the first marijuana producer to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. CNBC's Jim Cramer sat down with the CEO moments ago about how cannabis could be a key disruptor. Huge disruptor to the opioid guys. It's a, a very big disruptor in terms of what people might even think about uh, benzodiazepines, sleep aids. Right. There's a bunch of places this will disrupt, and it can because it's been kept way back from science. And up in Canada, we got about three or 400,000 Canadians who are medical patients in a federal program, so we can start doing intellectual property filing, and we can actually make uh, what I'll call really different products. We must turn to our resident cannabis king, chief res uh, cannabis correspondent. So yeah, I saw Bruce Lynn today. Again, they have been leaders. They are a global player, so it's not just Canada. Canaccord had a great event today. Every company that is somebody in the cannabis space. Uh, I think that's the things that are interesting about Bruce Linton and Canopy. They are listing in New York. Uh, people have been... People come to me all the time. What can I invest in? What can I invest in? Obviously, a lot of the market cap is in Canada. There have been regulations, restrictions on the U.S. That's changing. Canadian companies who some argue have overpriced stocks, uh, therefore overpriced currencies, makes a lot of sense for them to be buying cheap U.S. assets. Expect more of that. I think the big boys are going to be shopping around. Uh, but no matter what, more liquidity is coming to cannabis. Exciting times. The political football is very much in favor, I think. Of but even companies. if they just remain in, Can in Canada, I mean, Trudeau is pushing for the legalization of recreational use, right, yeah. across the country in Canada. So that could open up a whole new... Yeah, I guess I guess my point is that the Canadian valuations traded a massive premium to the U.S. valuations. Right. And a lot of people say, why should the U.S. is a bigger market? You look, if Canada is big, California is, is huge. California is an $8 billion market by 2020, roughly. So uh, all I'm pointing out is I think there's going to be a bid under the U.S. assets. Some of them do trade here. Um, either way, uh, it's an exciting time in the space because there's no question the things he's talking about in terms of opioid and over-the-counter. Look, This opens it, up for retail, it, to, to Tim's point. It opens up for retail. People who normally don't buy Canadian retail stocks investors, or yeah. retail investors and institutions that don't want to buy a Toronto stock exchange stock right. come here. This could only help with liquidity. This is really ground floor. I don't care what the moves that these stocks have already had in it. I think it's up from here for the whole space. All right. Catch the full interview with Jim Cramer and the Canopy Growth CEO on Mad Money. That is tonight. Starts at the top of the hour. Well, first comes pot, then comes the munchies, and options traders are betting one burned-out dining stock oh. is gearing up for some pretty high returns. Let's get to Mike Coe in Austin, Texas, with the options action. Mike. Hi there. Yeah, so we saw it in a couple of the uh, restaurant spaces today. These, these are names that haven't been doing particularly well, and not all of the news has been that great. DRI, Darden Restaurants, saw 15 times the average daily call volume. And that included a buy of 2,000 of the July 85 calls for $3.50. So a buyer of that obviously believing that the stock can make it above 85 by the $3.50 that they spent by July expiration, which is two months away, or above 88 and a half. And we did see some similar sort of recovery-type plays in Jack in the Box as well. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. We'll see you tomorrow. And tomorrow's the full show of Options Action, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Still ahead, WWE SmackDown giving the stock a boost today on reports the popular wrestling franchise will be shopped around by different networks. We'll bring you the details right after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of WWE topping the tape today. The stock's soaring more than 15% on reports the Wrestling Network's popular SmackDown franchise was up for grabs. The stock is now up nearly 65% this year. This is our parent company, Universal. NBC Universal isn't expected to renew its deal with the pro wrestling show when it expires in 2019. WWE SmackDown currently airs on the USA Network. Guy. And there's talk that it could be raw is what we're talking could be raw. worth three times yeah. its current value. I don't know. All I know is valuation-wise, this is now in the deep end of the pool. However, 
Yeah. If you bet against the stock, you're getting basically body slam. See what I did? Body oh. slam by Jimmy Superfly the Snooker. Snooker off the, the snooker top rope, Mel. Is that a real wrestler? Yeah, yeah. Jimmy yeah. Snoo yeah oh, Superfly. Please. Did that's that not do that? Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know who they are. Oh, that's, look at that This isn't Hulkamania here. I mean, this Point is, is, I think you stay with the stock. I, I, they will shop this. It will get picked up, and it probably will be for three or four times its value. As crazy as it sounds. People love this stuff. It's Apparently. the nuttiest thing. Russell watches it all the time. Oh, well, all the time. No accounting for taste. Are you all serious? <laughs> <laughs> no, but my kids do. The younger generation still loves wrestling. Oh. So you got to follow where the kids are looking at. The kids, Mel. Okay. They like the wrestling. They think it's real? Yeah. Yeah? No, they know it's entertainment. And okay. WWE, that's a, that's a very important point. WWE mm -hmm. says it's entertainment now. Right. And I think that's it's the whole It's not real? <laughs> Quick, go to break. Up next, final trades. <laughs> <laughs> like a laugh track. <laughs> it's time for the final trade. Around the horn we go. Tim Seymour. They told me in my ear what my final trade was, but I knew it was EOG because these stocks have been ripping. Stay in this trade. Or you would have said, put up my I final saying, put trade. Put up my final trade like Guy <laughs> like did two guy days ago. Guy, you ready? Uh, yeah, Karen. Yeah, yes. Well, I'm in the MLP space, even with interest rates moving. I still like Golar MLP. It's bounced a lot, but it never should have been as low as it was earlier in the year. Steve Grasso. Alibaba, been in and out. I'm currently in this trade right now. It's, you're going to see it gyrate with every trade talk headline coming out of Donald Trump. It's a buy. Stay with it. Let's not put up Guy's final no, trade. You don't what have is to it? What is MD, it? Wise guy. Remember about March 20-something in the Susquehanna Hat Club downgraded the stock? Yeah. Guess what they just did? Upgraded, yeah, upgraded, yeah. upgraded the stock. <laughs> Save the game. Right. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks for watching. Mad Money with Jim Kramer starts right now.